Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Bob Larson and Philip Lancaster. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning, Brad. Good morning. Happy to have you with us on this nice day and hope everybody is having a great day as we we're going to talk about several things. We got a couple really good listener questions on hay. We talked about hay storage, but we're going to address should you purchase or buy hay. We're also going to talk about the quantity and quality of hay that you want to get, as well as addressing some pre-weaning vaccination strategies and talking a little bit about how to extend the grazing season. Before we get into those topics, a couple things I want to address. One, We've got that photo contest going. So if you have a great photo that you want to send us of your operation or cattle in the pasture, you can send us send that to us at KSU at BCI BCI at KSU.edu. Where are they supposed to send yeah. that again? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> BCI at KSU.edu. And send us that by September 3rd. And then I've got a trivia question for you guys this morning. Where is the largest, who is the largest tire manufacturer in the world? In the world? In the world. I'm probably, I'm going to say, I mean, you just go to the top brand, brands, probably like, like Goodyear or Firestone or somebody like that. Man, okay. it, or it could be somebody in China or something like that. But, you know, I, I think I know this one because the other day I stepped. That's if you count bicycle tires. Well, that's what I was thinking, kind of going down that route. The other day, I stepped on a Hot Wheels car, and, you know, it hurt like crazy. And I got to me, there's there's a lot of Hot Wheel tires. So I'm going to say Hot Wheels or Mattel, the, oh. the, the toy manufacturer. They make a <laughs> lot of tires. They're not very big. You're close. It is actually Lego. And Lego has had the Guinness Book of World Records certify them as the largest tire manufacturer. They don't make the largest, largest tires. <laughs> I'm saying, they don't make big tires. <laughs> but they do make the most tires. So there's your, there's your trivia fact for the day. Yeah, I, I might be able to use that. This is, this is the time of year in many parts in the country. You get to August and things start turning brown, even if we're not in a drought. The grass is going away, and we're not quite to where we have cool season grass growing in the fall yet. We've got a little bit of a gap here. And so I wanted to start you guys thinking about if I want to extend the grazing season and have more grazing before I have to start feeding hay through the fall, what are some of my options? Are there any things I, I would consider? And I'm going to frame it for you. I want to think about other potential grazing sources so maybe sorghum sedan maybe other cover crops things of that nature philip yeah so when you when you say extend the grazing season i mean immediately to my mind it jumps to like beginning and end of the grazing season but like but there are also ways to improve your or enhance your grazing through the summer um so like you mentioned sorghum sedan is a good one um a couple of others that are are they're, they're all annuals um, but like pearl millet is one and, uh, annual crabgrass is another that are, that are good. And you don't have that risk of nitrate toxicity or anything like that with those, like you do with sorghum sedan, but you don't quite get the tonnage. Now, are you talking plant those by themselves or overseeding them in an existing pasture? Do I have to prepare a seed bed, get everything ready or how, how are those going to work? Um, you can, you can, depends on your, um, perennial forage base. So if you've got a warm season pasture or grass forage base already, then overseeding is not going to, not going to work well because the competition when you need to plant it 
is is wrong. But if you've got a cool season um, forage base, so like fescue or maybe 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 even brome. I'm not sure how it would work in brome, but um, those are going to start to slow down when the weather gets pretty hot, and so then you can intercede and that competition is not as great. And so your annual can get established. Can get established. And I think that's the key is kind of planning it out based on time of year. And there's a couple of things to think about. When am I going to plant it? And when am I going to need it or use it? So as we talk right now, it's late enough in the year. If you planted something like sorghum Sudan or a warm season forage, you're not going to be able to use it for a while. Well, that's just what I was thinking. That this seems to be a particularly difficult time of year because most of my cover, you know, and again, I'm only speaking from a fairly limited experience, but, you know, several of my cover crops, the sorghum Sudan, those kinds of things, we're still a few weeks away from really being able to use those. But you're stuck here in this August time frame when some of those those other annual crops aren't really available yet, but uh, but they, they will be pretty soon. And I think that's something to really consider how how can I extend the grazing season I to me personally August is often a challenging time because it just doesn't fit very well with a, a lot of things and so um I, I don't sound particularly smart and and like I've got great ideas for August but it's like well hang on till September October and we got some things coming yeah August August is really tough and then what about if we look toward the other end and let's say I've got some cool season grasses coming uh, that'll, that'll maybe help me through September, October. Is there anything that'll get me past, uh, let's say past a frost where I can keep grazing out there? I know some of my cool seasons I can, I can stockpile things like fescue. Any other cover crops I should consider? Well, so, um, like your fall, your, your fall, your cereal grains, if they're planted in the fall, um, will do well. Um, you know, depending on what your situation is, but um, cereal rye is a very popular cover crop um, plant that's used. Um, and so if you are um, have a crop operation or you have a neighbor that has a crop operation that would be willing to lease out grazing rights or something like that, if they're going to plant some cover crops, um, some cereal rye, then that'd be something you can graze in late fall, early winter, um, and and even again in early spring before your pasture. I was going to say sometimes, depending on the year, you can get two uses out of that. You yeah. can graze it through the fall, winter, then it it'll come on. It may be the first thing because you said let's extend the grazing season both at the front end and the back end, and and things like cereal rye you can do that with. Yeah, very well, and and that's a good. Uh, opportunity to, if you're not familiar with it, you may want to visit with your local extension agent. There are off, often people in town that have used that before that you may want to talk to. Uh, and certainly that can be a very productive crop. So you don't have to think, boy, I've got to have a lot of acreage to make this work on my operation. Wouldn't you say, Philip, that's going to be very yeah. productive. No, yeah. Yeah. Cereal rye produces uh, quite a bit of tonnage. Um, and so, yeah, plan out how much you need because you, you could easily plant more than you need. Yeah, exactly. And then you're, <laughs> then you've got a lot of excess forage. So we're, which is sometimes a good problem to have. Sometimes it still becomes a problem, but I think those are, those are things to start thinking about your strategy. And I would encourage you to experiment a little bit with what works on your operation. So it may be a combination of any of those things we've talked about. I also, and I know in our area here, 
because I see them as I drive into work or not. And I enjoy watching, uh, I'll call them the experimenters, <laughs> the people mm -hmm. who are trying something new. They're doing something different. They've got different crops. And certainly you see that stop, talk to those folks because they may have something that they can tell you and say, Hey, somebody else said this works great. Doesn't work great here. So you get some, a little bit of local knowledge. And I think that's worth, worth finding out a little bit more about the, the other thing I wanted to talk about this morning was we had a great listener question and, and part of it was pretty straightforward. Should I purchase or make my own hay? So should I buy hay from somebody else or should I make my own hay? And I wanted to get you guys' take because that's a, a relatively common question. Now, we may have folks that they've got hay equipment, they've been making hay forever. Well, this question still applies in that case because you don't have to keep doing things the same way we have been. But should I make or should I buy my hay? What do you guys think? I'm going to jump in before Philip gets to talk because he's going to be the nutritionist and he's going to give you a, a, the right answer probably. But I like hanging out with my ag economist friends because they always think a little bit differently than I do. And, and Dr. Pendle isn't here today, so I can talk over him. But, you know, one of the things that I hear about them talking about for cow-calf producers particularly is, is really watch your overhead and watch that equipment overhead. Um, you've got the, the purchase price, you've got maintenance, you've got diesel. And one of the ways to, to maybe consider both the cost, the cost side of the business is to minimize the amount of that type of equipment that you have. It's fairly, you know, fairly high overhead. Uh, so I think an ag economist would always say it depends. But one of the things is it depends in that a lot of times it would probably pay you to buy hay versus buying equipment and putting it up yourself. Now, as soon as you say that, though, then it's then you have to accomplish it. It's like, well, so there's am some, I gonna, there's some real logistical oh, yeah. challenges. So am I going to hire you know someone that's got a haying business to come do mine, and how how do I finagle them so that they cut my hay when I want it cutted, cutted when <laughs> when I want it cut, and or if I'm going to just flat out purchase hay, just gra I not really have hay ground, but graze all of my acreage and go purchase hay. I mean, can I get a consistent source? So. It, it really does depend a lot. I think from a strictly financial standpoint, probably purchasing hay or outsourcing that hay production makes a lot of sense if you can get it to work, if you can get the details to work. So, so one follow-up to that is thinking about whether hay is a revenue-generating part of my enterprise, right? So either for me or I'm selling it. Or is it something I have to do and I'm doing it as a cost? Yeah, I was right? thinking of it the cost. I was, yeah. That's the way I was coming. But there, but there are some folks that they say, hey, I'm going to have good hay equipment, but I'm also going to sell part of my hay and it's a revenue stream. Or I've got excess labor, i.e. young people yeah. <laughs> that, that need a job over the summer and, and uh, I can turn that. And, and those are the type of person, if I'm on the other end of this, uh, that I'm seeing hay as an expense. If I've got that kind of partnership, that might be a really good local partnership where someone else is supplying the labor and the equipment and and i don't have that overhead yeah but your your point i think is well taken in that it is not just what should i do it's what can i what do. can i do i right. think I, I think it's good to start with what should i do but then can i get it done yeah philip what are your thoughts so a, a couple different thoughts one uh, kind of jump on and add on to what bob was saying there thinking about the cost of equipment you know, from the, the economist's perspective, though, I say, you know, how many acres or how many bales of hay are you running through that equipment? And that's where, based on that relative to, to, to the depreciation of the equipment and the upfront cost, 
that's where it's gonna gonna pay off. So, you know, the, the smaller you are, the less you're gonna run through that equipment, and so the harder it is to make that cost pay off. Because it's a fixed cost, and then you you can attribute that cost to a per bale basis. And in some cases, if you're not making very many bales, it's pretty expensive per bale compared to purchasing it. Is that what you're saying? Yep, exactly. And so, but from another angle, kind of give you an example from when I grew, where I grew up, or when I grew up, um, there was several uh, local farmers that kind of were the same area. My dad worked with them or cooperated with them, and they would split up some of this kind of equipment. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, they had they had one baler that they all used. They had a you know they had a couple of somebody had the the mower conditioner and, and whatever and they all worked together to put up hay through the summer and so then that that equipment cost was spread out across more acres and they could all work together to do their own so that that's another way to do it um, the other thing I was going to, to talk about or, or mention from purchasing perspective um, you know the, the the risk with purchasing or one of the major risks with purchasing is okay what kind of quality hay mm-hmm. am I going to be able to find <clears throat> and so you know, then it becomes, all right, well, then if I get really poor quality hay, then, okay, well, how much is supplement going to cost me? And so, you know, it depends on what kind of animal you're feeding. We were talking earlier that, you know, if I'm feeding a, a mid-gestation dry cow, her energy requirement, her TDN requirement is really pretty low. You know, it's, you know, low to mid-50s, um, and she, she'll be all right um, with a little... Uh, protein supplement usually but then if you've got late gestation cows and you've got um growing replacement heifers things like that they need they need uh, mid 50 yeah. percent up to 60 percent tdn um to to do well and so you know finding hay of different qualities or things like that and then um you know pencil it out you know hay equipment's pretty darn expensive you know if i just need a, a little protein supplement or a, you know a little bit of distiller's grains to to make that hay work even though it is a little lower quality than i would like that still may be less expensive than buying your own hay equipment yeah and i think that jumps us right into our next topic philip to talk about what, what quality and quantity, whether I make it or buy it, what quality and quantity of hay do, do I want to get for my operation? And you, and you mentioned uh, certainly the difference in nutritional requirements, both among what I would call classes of animals. So the, the first calf heifer or the young growing animal versus an adult. And then based on timing, so mid-gestation, she's probably at her lowest requirements, early lactation she's at her highest and we want to prep her for that so how do i think about that in my planning process when i'm procuring my hay for next year well i think you know so you gotta if you're gonna if you're gonna purchase hay you gotta think about those different groups of animals and maybe you need to find some somebody that puts up a higher quality hay or or even a a better forage type of hay for those time periods and those classes of animals that need a higher uh, TDN or have a higher TDN requirement. Um, and then, you know, you can, somebody that, that has a, a lower quality forage base and maybe you can get it bought a little cheaper um, for those time periods in that mature cow where she can suffice on a much lower uh, TDN quality. And when you're saying TDN, 
give us a layman's explanation so, of what okay, we're talking so, about there. So TDN or, or is it stands for total digestible nutrients, and it's a measure of the amount of energy that that animal is going to get from digesting that hay. And so um, the that's the that's the biggest nutrient requirement she has is energy. Uh, all right, protein is relatively cheap to supplement. Energy is not very cheap to supplement. And so um, she we've we've got to focus on that TDN or that digestible part of uh, nutrients in that forage. And I think one of the things that I hear you saying is is there are times when some forage testing is very reasonable. Um, if I'm buying forage and I don't have a so basically I don't really know what I'm buying. I can look at it and I can see does it have a lot of weeds in it is you know but but I don't know much. And so some forage testing at that time might be really helpful. First of all, mainly just to help me decide well, which hay do I feed to my mid-gestation cows and which hay do I save for replacement heifers? I'm one that, that I think using some forage testing, you know, getting some core samples out of those bales and sending it to a lab is valuable. Many times, if, if I'm using my own hay and I really know my hay, you know, that if I put it up early, it's going to be pretty good quality. If I put it up late, it's going to be moderate quality. If I know that, I may not need to forage test every year to, to confirm that. But if I'm buying hay, I really don't know very much about it unless it's a, you know, repeat source or something like that. So I, I guess I'm throwing out to you um, forage testing probably lots of times. How, how, how would you look at forage testing in this situation when you're buying hay? I, I would say it's a, it's a very um, important step, uh, maybe somewhat situationally, especially – I'd say it's more important if you are buying from a, a new source for the first time. Um, and so you don't really know what you're going to get. Cause you know, if you ask the guy, the guy that's putting up, Hey, you know, lots of them don't test it. If you ask him, well, did you get a forage test? Do you have any results to show me? Most of them, you know, will say, well, no, I didn't get tested. I put it up right. I got it up at the right time of year, you know? Yeah. And they'll, they'll all awesome. tell you, they'll all tell you that. And so, um, you know, if you if it's a new source that you're not sure of, then I, that's a good a good plan. Um, you know, if you're going back to if you're if you're a repeat customer and you know your um, hay producer well, then you, you probably don't need to do it every single year. I want to yeah. make a distinction and maybe uh, push back a little on your uh, if we're feeding mature cows. Then, then it doesn't matter. I, I'm not <laughs> if it's good, excited awesome. about doing forage testing and do it because it, when hay goes to d dairies, mm -hmm. they're, they're going to know what the relative it. feed value yeah. is. And they're going to know some of those qualities of the hay and test and make sure because it's going into a very intricate ration that has to be balanced well. It, uh, beef cows are different, especially pre-lactation, right? And they're going through gestation and you go, ah, looks like the hay was made about right. In most cases, I'm good with that. But you're saying different situation if you're talking about growing heifers or that early lactation cow, then I may want more information about the forage so I can get my, because it's a, it's a, it's a higher, those cows are a higher demand. Which, which I think there you're saying strategically plan your hay purchasing or and making test. and that I don't probably want to have all the same quality of hay because there's oh, a trade-off here. I'm not going to have, I'm not going to have all the same yeah, quality anyway, but there's a trade-off between 
quality and quantity and right price. so some so, and price and some people will have hay that they put up that maybe was a little bit late and has much higher quantity more bales but lower quality as well, as judged by the TDN or total digestible. Right. And, and I know some guys that really make that work for them. You know, there's a number of producers that, that you know, they know either they're purchasing or putting up hay, and, and they actually kind of wait till it's a little bit farther along so they get more tons, but because it's because they have a pretty good low-cost protein source. You know, they can get a hold of some wet distiller's grains really easily um, at, a, at a good price, and so they just want the tons of forage to mix with their and and but that becomes very situationally dependent. I don't want to sit on a on a podcast and tell people exactly what to do. It's just that if you if, again kind of talking to your neighbors, talking to people that are successful, there's a lot of different ways to to manage cow nutrition and do it well. But the ones that the people that do it well um, work at it. You know, they 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 do. They work at how do I and they and they know these trade offs. They know the trade offs of lower quality but more tons well then i'm going to need some protein supplementation first of all can i buy it at a good price and can i deliver it and so um yeah it, it is interesting that the quality versus quantity and then price of not only the hay but any supplement ma makes these decisions and it's and it's why it'd be great if dustin pendle was here you know it, it the re that's why it depends is well, you've got costs and quantities on all of these but you can buy subsets and say hey i know i need to feed this as i come close to calving or right after calving and then oh i love now good quality. and then i love good I quality forage for my for my replacement heifers and and late gestation early lactation cows it makes all the supplementation so much easier if you've got some really good quality forage for those subsets well and you have you you've done this with the students so you've had yeah. students that you go through and you say okay now try to make this work with poor quality forage and on cows not not a huge hurdle to jump over right replacement heifers huge hurdle huge hurdle yeah you get to a you get to a big stopping point so i i think that's a to summarize as you guys said purchase or buy hay is going to be dependent a little bit on your situation but watch your fixed costs make sure you've got enough bales running through there and then the quality versus quantity have a feel for what your operation needs and and we talked about quantity but we didn't really address it but you can think about how am i going to have enough that a lot of times people want to have a reserve in case something happens during the winter kind of plan out and i would recommend again you keep track of it year to year. How many did I keep last year? How many cows do I have about the same? Okay, well, that worked out or I need to add a little more. So something to think about as you plan for the plan for the fall. But before we get there, our next big thing we're coming up on is weaning. And weaning is often associated with that's when we're, we may be selling the calves. We may be keeping them on the operation. But I want to address a little bit of pre-weaning health management. And I want to think about it from the vaccine side, Bob. So as I have calves, let's say they're born in March and I'm approaching an October, November weaning date, uh, anything I should be thinking about now as far as vaccine or vaccine needs for these calves? Yeah, I think the, the real, the building block, the piece of information that people are building off of is vaccines work best when they are given to cattle ahead of the time when they really need that immune protection. So if I can get them well immunized a few weeks before they're at risk for the disease, then my, then my vaccination program is most helpful. 
So if you're going to be selling cattle shortly so after— So think about when you're going to get sick and, and then and then vaccinate three weeks earlier. Betcha, Is that right? what you're saying? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, and, and that sounds silly until you think about it. You say, if I'm going to sell cattle um, pretty shortly after weaning, well, their biggest risk for respiratory disease is really during that time when they're going to be trucked, marketed, mixed with some other cattle. So if I can back up several weeks ahead of that and get a couple of doses of vaccine into them prior to that, that really does improve the potential for them to not run into some health problems. And that's why you see some of these uh, you know, special tag programs or things like that from a marketing standpoint. If you've got some fairly recently weaned calves that have been pre-vaccinated so that they're well immunized prior to that time, that has some value to the next layer, the next uh, segment of the industry. Now, on the contrast is if I'm going to keep the cattle around for myself, you know, I'm going to grow them up through until after the first of the year or something like that. My risk may not be right, right at that time. And so maybe I can delay my first vaccination to the day of weaning and then the next one about three weeks after that. So it again, it becomes very situationally dependent of when do you think your risk is really going to be? Uh, when am I going to change their diet? When am I going to expose them to other cattle? Uh, but your point being that, you know, if we're going to be weaning in October, November, as we get towards the end of summer here, August and early September, now's the time to be thinking about some of those, some groups of cattle probably would really be um, good targets for a, a weaning vaccine or pre-weaning vaccination soon. And some, it's going to be a little bit later into the fall. And I want to follow up on one of the things you said, because in the last year in the news, I bet we've heard more about vaccines. Yeah, we've heard a little bit. <laughs> than, than any other year, right? And and some of the conversation has been, did you have one dose or two dose? Some of the conversation has been, after you had your dose of vaccine, how long was it until you were considered protected? Protect, yeah. And And I think that same concept applies here in that when we build immunity in cattle, we're often building it in stages. And soon after you're vaccinated, depending on what vaccine, you may start to build some pretty non-specific immunity that would help, but probably won't solve the issue. But a lot of times what you're saying, uh, it may take two to four weeks before I've really got that immunity at a high enough level that might confer some protection. So I have to plan in advance of giving that. And then with some vaccines, there are some vaccines that one dose is probably adequate, but there are some vaccines I've got to have that second dose. Yeah. You now, I think you're exactly uh, on target there. Um, and, that, and that's why I'm really talking about planning and kind of looking ahead. Um, and so that I want, so in general, because when we are talking about vaccinating these cats, it's primarily for the respiratory disease pathogens, IVR, BVD, you know, so sometimes called red nose or, or whatever. Uh, IVR and BVD are two viruses. Uh, we also might have a black leg vaccine, a clostridial vaccine in there, possibly some of the bacterial causes of pneumonia like Mannheimia, Pasteurella, those types of things. So that, that's the handful of products. And, and the reality is each one of those is a little bit different but we're going to give them one, <laughs> one injection. And so to kind of optimize that, probably the, well, one, one injection for each one. I mean, we're not mixing all those together. We're, well, one injection, some of on them the are combined, depends on the product, but you, you're probably going to give them all at one, one time. Or, one or two, one or two injections. Yeah. Right. Um, and so to optimize kind of the best for the group, I think good pro is, is I'd like the 
the final dose to be three or four weeks before they really are most at risk. And then a lot of times we would like one more dose ahead of that. So that's three or four weeks ahead of that. So you're, you're looking out here six to eight weeks before you really, really want them well protected would be the optimum time to start thinking about that. And so again, if, if we're going to be weaning in October, um, it's time to start thinking about how we're going to set those calves up for, for really good success. And Dustin, a couple of weeks ago when he was on, talked about potential premiums mm -hmm. or if you're vaccinated, preconditioning programs. I would encourage you, because this is the pushback, right? Am I going to get paid yeah. for doing this if I'm selling them at weaning or not? And this will be dependent on where and how you plan to sell those calves. I so agree, you, totally. you've got to tie it right to what's going to be my marketing strategy. Is there a sale around that's going to do it? But I have to set these calves up. And, and as I think about it, and if I'm using the scenario that I'm going to keep them or maintain some ownership... I want to set them up with the best immunity as soon as possible. And often, if I can do that pre-weaning, if I have any other health procedures that need to be done, that can be valuable. If I'm going to keep the calves, I can start at weaning. But I want you to address just briefly, is there any concerns about vaccinating calves right at weaning? Or say, I weaned them yesterday and I'm thinking about vaccinating them today. Yeah, we do that in the beef industry a fair amount. Um, and it's not ideal. It, it's not necessarily, yeah, so I don't know how big of it, I don't know how big of a problem it is. I, the ideal time is to vaccinate cattle when they are not stressed. And we know that, that weaning separation from their dam and changing their diet can be stressful. So one of the things we talk about is to get the best out of our vaccines is to have the calf in the, and again, it has to be practical, but in the best position possible. So uh, as little other um, stresses going on as possible. Uh, and so some of the, some of, some producers do great. That first vaccine may be at weaning, but they're using a low stress weaning. They're not changing the diet very much. Um, and, and so that, that vaccine works pretty well. So I'll, I'll go back to this. You know, you, you mentioned that most people have probably heard of COVID and, and we've talked about the vaccine, but you know, disease control is not all about the vaccine. It's also about well, you know, good diet, low stress, you know, are you co-mingling with other calves? And, and the vaccines are one tool and they're a good tool. Um, but when we're talking about calf health, it's really about setting up the system so that those calves are going to do pretty well. You've got to manage that balance. Too, yeah. It's too easy to say, I'm just going to vaccinate them and get good immunity. No matter what disease we're talking about. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. If you have a high enough exposure level, the immunity is not the issue in many of our diseases. It's the exposure. So you have to balance both sides of the equation. And if I only focus on immunity, I'm not going to solve disease problems. Right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. And that's why I got to mark that. I got to mark that. Yeah. Down. Cause I don't always agree. With you. But th <laughs> that's why we talk about a pre weaning program. It's not just, and we, a lot of times we would throw out pre weaning vaccination, but it really is a pre weaning program. What's, what's our, what's our plan to get these calves uh, to handle that weaning change, commingling well. Yep. And it's time to start thinking about it. And we, we've had a couple good discussions and appreciate you listening in with us today. And we've got the, I'll remind you, we've got that picture contest going. If you want to send us a picture, you can send us that by September 3rd. And we really enjoy, we had a couple great listener questions today. We enjoy those. If you have a listener question for us, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Mm -hmm.